the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Back to fighter squadron it is, Flight Lieutenant Emily Willis. I'm very much looking forward to this interview. Emily joined the Army in 2011 as a general service officer under an aviation cadetship and after ADFA and RMCD she was posted to the Air Force Basic Flyer Flying Training School. She was then posted to Fast Jets and graduated from two operational conversion units in 2017. She was posted to 77 Squadron as her first operational fighter squadron on F-18 Hornets, and she loves them and missing them for 2021. Emily, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I've got to ask you, the Army? Why the Army and not straight into the Air Force? That is a good question that I've had a lot of people ask me. Um, When I was in high school, uh, we had a number of family friends that were helicopter pilots. Um, One of them was the chief pilot with Emergency Management Queensland doing search and rescue and hospital transfers, um, which is obviously uh, an interesting, challenging and rewarding job to be involved in. Most definitely. And the other was um, instructing at the, um, at AVNTC, so the Army um, Helicopter Conversion Course, Um, but his background was with the Royal Marines um, over in the UK as a jungly pilot, and he'd been to Argentina and uh, the Falklands War. In the Falklands War, yeah. Um, And I guess my early experience to aviation was flying helicopters. And I just loved rotary. And when I went to flying flight screening, um, I basically put Air Force as my last preference because I didn't want fixed wing. Um, <laughs> and the idea of being on a boat didn't really float my boat. So I went army <laughs> and I was headstrong. I was like stubborn. I will, uh, I want to fly heli- helicopters. I will go for army. And um, that's where I ended up. Uh, and you got to fly helicopters? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny how things turn out? <laughs> yep. Uh, so three years at ADFA, getting my degree and sure. doing the tri-service training, a year of army officer training, and then I finally got onto flying um, CT4s at BFTS, which is tri-service, Army, right. Navy, and Air Force. Yep. Um, and I was blown away at how much I enjoyed the tri-service environment and flying fixed wing. And um, What I was your first fixed wing flight? Um, I had gone for a fixed wing flight at about the age of 14, um, just on a Cessna uh, 152, I think it was. So flying is in your blood, <laughs> 14 years of age. Well, you, you could tell my grandfather that. He was a civilian pilot and he'd definitely take ownership of that. But um, So he, did he teach you to fly? No, no, he lives up in Cairns. So um, we've never been flying together. That would be amazing if we could do that one day. Still time. There is still, still time. time. Yep. Get in, get, you can't put him in an F-18, unfortunately. But No, but I am working on getting my civilian pilot's licence at the moment so that I can do some more of that so stuff. So just that's an interesting point. Uh, you're a fighter pilot with the RAAF, but you've got to get a licence to fly a civilian aircraft. Why is that? 
the different training schemes and different licensing procedures. Um, I think the Air Force training is obviously leaps and bounds ahead of um, civilian pilot training. Mm. Um, but they do make it relatively simple to get the licenses as long as um, I basically take my logbook to my commanding officer and they sign off on my forms for my endorsements and my right. hours and CAS is pretty good at yeah. recognising that. So when you graduated, you were, what, 2017, was it? The on Horn, it was uh, December 2017. December 27. You were then posted straight to 77 Squadron. Yes. That's a pretty significant jump. It is. Um, that's probably been one of the discussion points um, around 2OCU for the last dec decade or so, that 2OCU is always a six-month course, and yet you look at how far um, aircraft and platforms have come over the last 25 years from the Hornet when we first got it to where it is now, and now we're on to F-35. It's still um, a six-month course. Yeah. Um, so it, you learn a lot in that six months, and then when you come to the squadron, it's like the training wheels are off and there's still so much more to learn. Um, sure. But it's an awesome opportunity and it's being handed the keys to an amazing an aircraft. <laughs> yeah. Here's your toy, go and play with it. Uh, a lot of people that I've spoken have talked uh, talking about the F-18, how it has evolved uh, in terms of the different technology that's now employed in the aircraft now, given that you graduated in 2017, that's that not that long ago. So you were, have you experienced in any way, shape or form the earlier F-18s? Um, I haven't experienced um, earlier F-18s, but definitely a growth in tactics. Um, as even in my time at the squadron, um, our tactics have progressed. Um, in what with, way? With the... Um, advantage of Link-16, um, so old tactics of flying around in close formation as a four-ship, um, which is what was standard when I first joined the squadron in 2017, is now almost a de degraded state. We have ability to um, uh, have a bigger footprint and fly further apart from each other and achieve effects. Um, so you, so it's you're a different more, tactic. You're more flying, tactically, you're more flying as individuals in a team, is that? Yeah, yeah, basically. And communication with each other is obviously radio or is it directed from base because of radar? How does that work? Uh, so we still have um, radio between fighters as the primary um, communication, but a lot of it comes down to training and game plans and, and knowing... Um, just like a team getting ready for finals, you, you know where you expect people to be and what mm. role they're going to play. It's similar to that. Again, uh, from some of the older members of the RWF that I've spoken to when they talk about the helmet, when the helmet had heads-up display in it as opposed to the display on the panel or on the screen, is that a difficult thing to get used to? Because you would now be using heads-up display in your helmet, wouldn't you? Uh, so... The F-18 has a heads-up display in the cockpit as well as um, a helmet-mounted queuing system, right. um, which is uh, a bridge between the, between the two. It's an extension of that heads-up mm -hmm. display in your helmet um, for employing weapons, which is really useful. And then the F-35 is the next step on that where there's no more heads-up display it's at all. It's only in the it's helmet. It's all in the helmet, um, which I, I think will be a big, big leap to get to. Um, but... The HUD is um, pretty common sense to use, um, and I think 
you come through your progression on um, pilot's courses on the CT4 and the PC9 mm. that don't have a HUD um, and you're using visual attitudes um, out the window to it, fly your with aircraft. The, it, the ev evolution of technology in the F-18, if you are engaged in, in an actual engagement, a real one, and there's a target on the ground that you've got to take out, I believe you're, you can now look, your eyes can be the the directional how does that work how, how can you look down at something and that and the munitions know where to go um it's look i'm not a computer scientist no no no, no <laughs> I, I want a layman's explanation layman's explanation um so the pre-flight you um are in the aircraft and you align the helmet um to the bore side of the aircraft basically yes. um, and then once you've got a good alignment on that it knows reference the aircraft position where you're looking on the ground. Um, and then it, when you are able to look out the window and, and make a designation on a, a target on the ground, it takes into account databases of sure. what the elevation should be. Um, and it's unbelievable. We'll be able to hold that point for you. Um, yeah, it's pretty accurate, but um, for a lot of the smart weapons and things we're using today, you can further refine those details. Like that's more of a rough hack and it's um, really good as, particularly in outer surface when you can look out the window. It, sure. It's great for your situational awareness. You're not always looking in the cockpit trying to um, So you, you really are, it's like sensors. driving a, oh, silly question. It's like driving a car, but you're up in the air. If you can look it's around. A, pretty fast busy car that <laughs> can do a lot of damage as well but yeah, well, yeah. it's a pretty lethal car um i believe you're also involved in a rather significant international exercise with the f-18 is that uh, where you were um i've been lucky to bushido guardian and is that what it was bushido called? guardian yeah that was um one of the exercises we did in september last year i think since i've been at the squadron with 77 we've done about three big international engagements um, over that time and we do about three exercises a year so we'll do a couple at home, one overseas um, but the one Bushido Guardian was the first time our squadron had been back to Japan since being the occupying force in, at the end of World War II Really? Yeah um, and it was um, a very special exercise to be I imagine. doing bilateral training and um, really being welcomed and hosted so well by the first Squadron, so F-15 um, Fighter Squadron in Japan, um, and being able to have a really good time and get some good training out of it. It's impressive so to see So you're actually that. training with the Japanese Training with crew. them, yeah. The language? Um, what, or is uh, English a standard across all platforms? Uh, so they generally um, have a good level of working English because they do a lot of um, exercises with the United States. Yes. Um, and in 2018, um, I was involved in a Cope North ex exercise in Guam, which has Japanese attendance as well. And I thought it was really impressive and a credit to um, the squadrons we worked with in um, 28, sorry, 2019. Um, was how much they had worked on their English and all of their presentations to make sure that it was pretty seamless. Mm. Um, yeah, they'd worked a lot on it to make sure that we could work well together. You're the first RAF member that I've spoken to that's actually worked with a non-English speaking country. And I've, 
I keep on asking about the camaraderie that exists with pilots across nations and the relationship between Australia and the United States and Canada and even the RAF is pretty good. Tell me about the camaraderie that, that obviously existed in Operation Bushido with the Japanese. Um, I think the, the Japanese culture are, are very big on hospitality and welcoming people and they want to be known as good hosts. Um, so there was definitely an aspect of that um, where the day that we arrived um, was a weekend and we were expecting to just get started um, for the exercise on the Monday. But as we arrived, um, it was basically a full-on parade by Australian standards. They had banners out. They had all three squadrons from the base lined up with all their people at the side of the hangars cheering us in as we taxied in yeah. at the end of our transit and we're getting out of the transit with our rubbish bags and everything else feeling like a bit messy and we haven't you know presented for the occasion um so they were so happy to have us there and looked after us but then when you just get the two air crew groups together as well the language barrier is quite easy to get over because they're um, fighter pilot culture is very similar to ours. It's this similar mentality as far as how the group sure. um, look after each other and um, you know banter each other and the same the same sort of social um, connections. I understand. Have you had much to do with other nationalities, Air Force personnel? Um, I've largely only been exposed to. Um, United States and some of the Royal Air Force, um, or the US, and um, obviously we, we do a lot, a lot of work with those mm. guys. And the, the reason I ask Emily is that I'm just wondering how you see the RAAF and its training and its camaraderie and its fellowship being similar or different to the other nationalities that you've experienced. Is there a difference in your opinion? It's hard to say. I feel like. Um, the, the short exposures on exercises because they're, they're high tempo, um, you're away based from home. Um, we generally are all on the same page as far sure. as um, working really long hours for those exercises and um, having a lot of fun exploring the sites of wherever you're deployed to on the weekends or when mm. you have time off. Mm. Um, and they do a lot of similar stuff. Um, I feel like our Air Force is obviously a lot smaller, so building the longer-term um, connections and um, making long-term friendships with people in the RAAF mm. um, happens more naturally because we've got three fighter bases and after a couple of posting cycles, it's all the same people and you keep on sort of moving through the system together. Sure. I think it was in June of 1988 that Flight Lieutenant Robin Williams and Officer Cadet Deborah Hicks became the first two female pilots in the RAAF, which puts the RAAF way ahead of everyone else in terms of equality of sexes within the Air Force. Do you know anything about, if it still exists, Project Winter for the RAAF and how it's encouraging women to be involved in Air Force jobs? I believe it does still exist. I haven't been hugely involved with it. Yeah. Um, but... I think there is still a need for that. While um, I'm one of the two females flying Classic Hornets, uh, we've now got uh, one female pilot of Super Hornet um, and one doing training on Growler. 
So we're starting to get numbers, um, but it's still just a drop in the ocean. Sure. And, yeah, we've got women um, being interested in, and making it through the training continuum, but we still don't have women in the leadership levels. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see um, if we can maintain and build on the numbers of women we have in air combat group and on fast jets and in fighter flying. I know that the RAAF, I think it's the first in the world to achieve it, has a, an accreditation as a, a breastfeeding friendly workplace. That's 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 a really con- big commendation for the RAAF. First in the world to do it, Australia. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mention that. My, um, my auntie got her PhD basically studying breastfeeding programs in workplaces. Um, Was she involved in this scheme? No, she wasn't involved with this scheme. Um, I'm not not really across what the scheme entailed um, to get accreditation. Um, I think it's it's a great achievement, but there's probably still more work to do as far as I could not imagine having a child and bringing it into... (laughs) the flying squadron crew room and just having to sit down and breastfeeding. I, like, as, as far as um, it's great that we've got that accreditation, but there's probably more work to do. Yeah, oh, look, I, I think so. And the quicker that happens, in my opinion, the better. Um, a, a fighter pilot is a fighter pilot. doesn't matter their background, their nationality, their sex, whatever. A fighter pilot is a fighter pilot. You mentioned the Hornet and you mentioned the Super Hornet. What's the difference between the two Hornets? Um, and the Growler. Well, it's and three. the Growler. Yeah. Um, so, whilst uh, the Super Hornet and the Hornet are multi-role, the Super Hornet is a half generation ahead of the classic Hornet. Um, so, a few more um, technological and weapons advancements mm. and radar advancement on the classic Hornet. The Growler is an electronic warfare platform. Um, so, both the Growler and the Super Hornet are two-seat. Um, aircraft variants and um, the backseater of a Super Hornet is a weapons system officer um, that does a lot of the air-to-surface employment right. and the backseater in a Growler is an electronic warfare officer. And Gosh. Basically a incredibly smart... Test your memory. Let's go back to your very first flight in an F-18. Single seat, just you. What was that like? It was pretty unreal. Um, I remember I my first flight in a Hornet with, was with Ice, um, nicknamed Tony Luxury, um, <laughs> and he's a lovely guy. He's um, but he would have been your wing person, surely. He wouldn't have been in the plane with you. Uh, well, your first flight in a in a Hornet is with an instructor. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but he's a lovely guy, and it, one of the great things about two OCU was. Um, the way they replicate a squadron environment, even though you're still in training. Um, so you get a, a feeling for the camaraderie whilst you're on course and sort of get brought into the fold and the expectations on how a squadron should operate. Um, so I was really lucky to have my first flight with him. Um, we get along pretty well. Um, and yeah, I, I think the things that really stood out to me was the, the thrust on the takeoff, having afterburners in. Um, that blew my mind a bit. And then um, we did a lot of max performance handling um, with the F-18 when we got out into the airspace. And I remember it was um, not a cloudy day, but there was 
lots of little puffy yes. clouds around um, sort of at mid-altitude. Um, and he got down level with the clouds and showed us showed me um, high alpha handling on the F-18. What, what does that mean? Um, so th- that's one of the um, real beautiful things about the classic Hornet is it's, um, yes, a fast jet, but it's really good at slow speed handling. And when you're slow speed in a fast jet, it means that your um, nose has to be quite high to the horizon. Um, and how high you get against the horizon is called alpha. Your, your right. degrees between your nose and the horizon. You're teaching me to fly. Thank you. Yeah, it keeps you airborne. It's it's basically being very close to stalling, um, but staying level. <laughs> <laughs> Did and, you ever stall? <laughs> uh, yeah, I probably yeah, have in. at times. <laughs> okay. Um, it depends if it achieves what you want to do or sure. if it's an accident. But um, uh, he was showing me um, high alpha for the first time and there's these little clouds and I just remember looking out the window, basically nose felt like it was perpendicular to the horizon and we're basically stationary next to these clouds. Um, and that's, yeah, the biggest takeaways from my first flight in a horn. It just blew my mind that Fantastic. you could do that in a fast jet. And landing or taking off, which is your preference? Taking off. Yeah. For sure. Um, landing's a means to an end when you don't really want it to end, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Take your point. Take your point. Um, what's your nickname? Everyone seems to have a nickname in the Air Force. My nickname is SWAT. Why? Uh, it's named after the um, American police, right? The special weapons and tactics teams. Oh, oh that's SWAT. Yeah, the urban police. Urban that police. Go and, um, urban ops. Yeah, oh, basically the heritage in the army and and being trained in yeah, you're never going to live down joining the army first. Makes me <laughs> Have you ever flown a helicopter? You that's what you wanted to start off in. Um, only little Robinson twenty twos, Robinson forty fours. So um, back early days when so I first started. So fixed wing now is is that's your that's your passion. It is. Uh, well, fast jets is a passion. I think. Um, when my fast jet career is coming to its end, I don't think I would really seek out doing the heavy um, passenger flying sure, or necessarily sure, sure. going to back to other aircraft, but helicopters, it's still So be. what is your hope looking forward? Now, the 18 goes into retirement next year. The 35 sits there. Uh, do you hope one day to be flying the F-35s? Yeah, absolutely. So my next job will be um, teaching kids off the street how to fly uh, within Air Force really? on PC-21, um, which is part of my career progression and getting tertiary qualifications. And then after that, yeah, I'd hope to fly the F-35 um, next. So the RAAF is your passion from now on? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. It's pretty good um, career progression and, and job to have. This is fantastic. Look, Emily, it has been an honour to chat to you today. Um, one of only two female pilots with the 77 Squadron, which has a, an illustrious history. You are part of a very proud tradition of fighter pilots, flyers, 100 years next year, 2021. I want to thank you for your service and I want to thank you for the privilege of talking to you today, Emily, thank you. Thank you, it's an honour to be helping out the 77 Association and carrying on the pride of the grumpy monkeys. Globally, The RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, 
peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.